Yes, sir. It's the Bible Rundown with Pastor Dave and Pastor Rob. We're on the mic today. It is day 190. We are in Job 38 through 40, and we have gotten to the end of the book of Job. The Lord finally speaks, David, and he has spoken very sternly to Job here. What are we to take from what the Lord says to Job after all this time, after all this suffering, the Lord speaks. What are we to take from it? Do you think it's okay for us to feel like God doesn't give a satisfactory answer if what you're really looking for is why did these things happen? Mm. So it's interesting. God never, never comes back and tells Job, well, hey, listen, Job, here's what really happened, right? Satan said he recognized you're a righteous man, but he thought if I would let him touch your life, take away all these things, right, make you feel like you're a curse of God rather than a righteous man, that you would curse me in return and walk away. But he doesn't, he doesn't peel back any of the curtain, mm. right, and doesn't explain his methods. And I think that's why this is a wisdom literature book in the bible so i think if you're if you're looking at this and thinking well job deserves to hear from god the the true and honest answer Mm. then you're missing the point in god's response and in the reality of the world we often don't see what's going on in the spiritual realm ever and in this realm God doesn't say, hey, Satan told me to do this and this and this. And actually, I'm testing you and I'm showing my glory through the suffering servant who is righteous, who will be Christ. He doesn't say all those things. Yeah. He just says who he is. So why do you think, and and we can talk through it, it's not necessarily you have to answer this question directly because I I have some thoughts too, but why... Why recalling so much of creation and the created order of things? Ooh, that's good. Why not talk about true human justice? Mm. Why does he go back to his control over nature? Because if he's in control over nature and he is the one who created all things, then he has a plan for all things. And that specifically Mm -hmm. involves his creation. That specifically involves the individual Job. God's perfect order has purpose and plan in it. Therefore, he has purpose and plan even in what seems to be chaos of this world, sin, darkness, sickness, all of these things, even death, God has a plan. And he's revealing that plan through Christ. We on the backside of of this get to see a larger picture than Job gets to see. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And I think it's one of those things of God's control over nature has been in existence for the beginning of time, right? Right. He who is eternal called these things into existence for his own purposes. Mm -hmm. And so if it seems confusing to us, what's the limit of Job's understanding? What's the limit of his years, right? And I I think it's... The wisdom of God is, is, is greater than the wisdom of man. 
The foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. But then he contrasts it, right, with what seems to be negligence on the part of nature. So he talks about these these different uh, animals, right, and either how they're brought into control for people's purposes, like when he talks about the ox in chapter 39, 9. But then he talks about the ostrich, right? And uh, That's a funny-looking animal, by the way. God, it is. God created that. Pretty funny-looking. But, you know, the fact that uh, these animals, these beasts, don't have the understanding that man is able to have of who God is, and yet God watches over them in his created order. Mm. So he gives all these animal descriptions, and then we get to chapter 40, and we talked about it before we talk about behemoth and what that thing is. Right. He gives this response to Job in chapter 40, verse 2. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Ooh. Why does he call Job a fault finder? I mm. thought Job was righteous. Mm. That's a good question. Well, I think we have to understand that Job is not without fault, even though he is righteous. So let me let me just make this clear. Job's righteousness is dependent upon God's faithfulness. So Job Job believes that he's righteous because of, I think it's alluded to at the beginning of the book, the sacrifices that he makes for sin. He, he alludes to it at the beginning for his children. But Job's righteousness, he believes, is, is because of God's steadfast love and his provision of sacrificial offerings for Job. So Job is not saying, I've never sinned. I don't think he says that in the book, but he's saying that I am righteous before God because I trust in God and the work that he has done. So ultimately, Job is actually trusting in what we would call a foreshadowing of the gospel, Christ, the steadfast love of God, the faith, the Abrahamic faith in the Lord to provide a provision for sin. Yeah. A sacrifice for sin, if you will. And I think the there's that side of it. And then another side of it, I think, is also God addressing someone that has a limited understanding and view compared with why he's allowing it to happen. So it makes me flash forward to Jesus being called because Lazarus is sick. And Jesus waits and lets Lazarus die. Mm -hmm. Why? Because he wants the glory of God to be demonstrated through the life of Lazarus. Right. So I think this line is kind of rhetorical, right? Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? I don't think God is, is accusing Job of anything sinful because we're told at the end that in everything Job did, he never sinned against God. Mm -hmm. But I think it's one of those things of... When you're talking to an architect about a building and you think you know that they did something wrong, mm -hmm. you got to remember that the architect probably designed it that way for a purpose. Ooh. And so if suffering in your life seems out of place, Ooh. if the one who designed your life to go through that suffering, who are you to question their design? Ooh. 
It's humbling, right? That's good. But that's good. I think that's, that's right. a good word. But then Job puts his hand on his mouth, right? He's like, all right, I'm not going to speak any further. And then we get this line, which uh, our ESV has this footnote, gird up your loins, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Transfer action like a man. I will question you and make it known. And so we flash forward and he gives a description of this creature called Behemoth, mm. who eats grass like an ox, has these huge muscles, right? Um, described like iron and like trees, uh, described as the first works of God, who's so powerful that God has to bring his sword in order to control him in verse 19, right? Uh, the, the mountains give him his food. He hides under lotus plants. Uh, he's down by the creek, right? We have this description of like reeds in the marsh. Uh, he goes by a river. What on earth is this thing? What do you think? Well, some some commentators believe that the behemoth is a hippo, David. Believe it or not, the hippopotamus as this huge creature that God has made that eats the grass like an ox, strength of his loins, power in his muscles of his belly. Tail stiff like a cedar, sinews, thighs are knit together, his bones of bronze and his limbs a bar and iron. But mm, that seems like why would God use the hippo um, for his point here? What do you think? So I had to do some digging, right? But uh my Hebrew professor gave a, a long lecture on the book of Job, which has been helpful. The term behemoth, in a singular term, it can be used of like, just like you said, like any type of like large animal. Yeah. Most of the time it would be like an ox, right? Mm-hmm. Here it's not just singular though. It's actually plural. So in the Hebrew it would be translated literally like behemoth beasts. Mm-hmm. Well, Rob, we see the description of beasts in a lot of other apocalyptic literature in the Bible, Daniel mm-hmm. describes four beasts that are also kind of mixed in their appearance, right? Right. To describe kingdom of the world. But there's also beasts in Revelation. Right. Which are representative of world powers right. under the control of the dragon. Mm. And yeah. so I think what... What it's getting at here is in God's response is he's he's talking about the idea that human power to try and create a utopia mm. through governments, through rule. I read an article about communist China. Did you know that they are outlawing grieving? I did not know that, David. I, I, I have not read that. But you think about, right, like yeah. there are these governments in our history that I think they, uh, they want to control everything that their people can and should do. And right. so I think like what, what Daniel's getting at here, it, it's this metaphor of just world powers are evil that stand against God. Um, it uses the... the the creature, just like we see in Daniel and Revelation, like these these animals that really the descriptions don't fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, a hippopotamus, right, or any of those things, because the way that they're described isn't really indicative of just that that one thing. Yeah, the beast that you're talking about, and in, in it's actually 
in reference to Daniel, and it describes the empires, the nations, uh, and and most of these are against God. The four beasts being the the lion, the bear, the leopard, and then the terrifying beast that most people associate with the Roman Empire. But these empires or these these beasts are representative of the world and its power struggle against the Lord. Yeah. And these empiric struggles that are demonic in their nature that are going against God's people and against God's word. Yeah. It's very interesting. And I think verse 24 is really where I would hone in, right? Because here's the thing. Can you conquer a hippopotamus? Yes. But the description of this animal where it's really leaving us, right, is God is saying nobody can take him by his eyes or pierce his nose, right, with a snare. Yeah. So basically it's uncontrollable except who's inferred to have control over it. God himself. God himself, right. And we know from other references in Scripture that there's no authority that hasn't been instituted apart from God. And that God can turn the king's heart in the direction he wants. Mm-hmm. So I think Behemoth is pointing us to this world system. Right. And in Job's case, he was a man of great wealth. And the idea that you can somehow create your own happiness and bring peace to your life and resolve your suffering is a very vain, prideful, human way of dealing with suffering. Right. Right? So I think Behemoth is much more than just an, another nature example or animal. It's interesting, right? After all the animals that we saw described in chapter 39, I think behemoth is to stand out as more indicative of like world power mm-hmm. or man's pride to try and deal with suffering yeah. in a vain way, right? Yeah. But ultimately, God will bring all that foolish ways of the world into submission, and he does it through the cross, Amen. his own tool of suffering. Amen. God uses these themes throughout scriptures, the beast, the behemoth, and Daniel's, the four beasts, and Revelation, the beast. He uses this theme throughout scripture to kind of help us to understand what we're actually up against and what, what's going on in our world today. So I appreciate you bringing that out with the behemoth. That, that was good. One last thought, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, what is he humbled to be like? He becomes to be like a... Like a beast, beast. eating grass, going out of his mind. So interesting, right? All these connections, I think it's it's pointing us to that theme. The behemoth. That's right. Hippopotamus, in some translations. We'll see you tomorrow. Bible Rundown.